0: You and I think of ourselves as individuals. We think that there is no one who is like us. And that's true. There's no one who's exactly like you are. And we all are distinct individuals. But the truth of the matter is, we also fit into certain categories. That is, we have things in common with other people who are like us in various ways. One of the easiest to... Um, understand is that some of us are male and some of us are female. And the male ones of us have things in common with other males that we don't necessarily have with the women and, and vice versa. But the truth of the matter is that there are a lot of things that can be said about us that can sort us into categories and into groups. And people who market products and people who try to get votes as politicians know these things. They know that if you own a pickup truck, for instance, there are certain things that probably appeal to you more than someone who drives a high-end luxury car. They know that if you're someone who goes to the opera, you have certain things in common with others that you might not have in common with people who go to monster truck rallies. All right, So there are people who are the same in many ways, but also distinct, but in ways that can be sorted into categories. And the truth of the matter is, people who fit into certain categories, the more you fit into that category, the less likely you are to have in common with other people. And there aren't a whole lot of things in this world, other than basic human needs like you know, food and shelter, that are common across all kinds of people. When people have interests, the differences among those people change what they're interested in. Not so with Jesus, although it's true that certain types of people are only interested in certain types of things. I have found, and I think the scriptures bear this out as well, that very different kinds of people are interested in Jesus. There are some things that cut across human categories in terms of interest, and Jesus is one of those things. He's one of those people. Different kinds of people are interested in Jesus. and chapter 18, as we looked at Luke 18 in the past several weeks, bears this out. We saw in Luke chapter 18 that different kinds of people were interested in Jesus. We saw in Luke 18 that parents were interested in Jesus. They brought their babies to Jesus so that he would bless them. And so while they may have differed in terms of where they were from, like in what town they lived in, what uh, tribe of Israel perhaps they were from, where they were in terms of their um, income and their economic status. All kinds of people who were parents brought their children to Jesus. We saw that in Luke chapter 18, verse 15. We also saw in Luke 18 that a rich ruler was interested in Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to speak to Jesus about his spirituality, about his spiritual life. And so in Luke 18, 18 through 30, Jesus talked with a man who was a rich ruler. And even though there were many others who fit in this man's category, who had a much more hands-off approach to Jesus, or maybe I should say they had more questions about Jesus than this man did, he wanted to meet Jesus. He was interested in who Jesus was. At the end of chapter 18, last Sunday, we saw a blind man who was a beggar. And he was interested in Jesus too. He heard because there was a huge crowd coming down the road where he normally did his begging. And so the sounds that he heard were different from the sounds that he typically heard. And so he asked, what's going on? What's happening? And he was told Jesus of Nazareth is coming by. But this man had heard of Jesus before. He'd never met Jesus. He'd never encountered him in person. But he'd heard of Jesus. And he'd heard of Jesus' miracle-working powers. And he saw as those miracles were designed to demonstrate that Jesus was no ordinary man, that he was a man. He was one of us, but he was one of a kind. That is, he was the son of David. And so although this man was told, this blind man was told, Jesus of Nazareth is coming to town... He didn't cry out, Jesus of Nazareth, pay attention to me. He cried, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He saw, even though he couldn't see physically, he saw spiritually who Jesus was. And so these people are very different from each other. Parents are different from rich rulers, and rich rulers are different from blind beggars. And so chapter 18 shows us that there are several kinds of people who are interested in Jesus. Here in chapter 19, we meet another kind of person, one who doesn't fit in any of the categories really that we've discussed so far. Let's look together at Luke chapter 19 verse 1. The blind man Jesus met at the end of chapter 18 was outside of Jericho. And now chapter 19 verse 1 says Jesus entered Jericho. So we're in the same area. Jesus is now entering the city. And he was passing through, and so Jesus' ultimate destination we know was Jerusalem. We've been told that over and over again for several chapters in the book of Luke. And so Jesus is not intending to stay for a long time in the town of Jericho. His intent is to move on through Jericho to Jerusalem. Verse 2 says, A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. We don't know much about this man, But we do know that his name is Jewish, and so it's not surprising because Jericho was a Jewish town, that this man is a Jewish man. But we know a little bit more about him through the end of verse 2, which tells us this. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. One thing that's important to understand or helpful to understand about the town of Jericho was that a major east-west road ran right through it. This is why Jesus is passing through this way, because there was a major road that went right through the town. And so as Jesus is passing on his way to Jerusalem, he is using a well-worn road to get there. But part of having a major east-west passageway through Jericho meant that people who were moving their goods and services from one side of Israel to another or to maybe even foreign countries would often pass through the town of Jericho. This is why that beggar was out by the road. And this is why he knew something sounded different, because he was used to the sound of, of wheels and wagons and, and uh, you know, donkeys and horses coming through, um, carrying loads through, but he wasn't used to such a large crowd at one time coming through. Well, when the Bible tells us in verse 2 that this man, Zacchaeus, was chief tax collector... It's telling us, and what we know about Jericho also tells us, that this man was collecting probably a particular type of tax, and that is he was taxing those goods and services that were moving through. He was, in a sense, a toll collector. And verse 2 tells us that he wasn't just a toll collector, he was a chief toll collector. And so if you think of this in the way that you might think of multi-level marketing in our world, where... Someone who signs up for one of these multi-level marketing businesses, recruits all of their friends and neighbors to, as many as they can, to also be part of the multi-level marketing and every little piece of business that anybody buys, everybody upstream gets a little bit piece of, right? That's what's going on in this passage. This man Zacchaeus is at the top of that pyramid. And so not only does he collect taxes on his own, but he has people under him. People in his downline who also collect taxes, and he gets a little percentage of what they uh, receive. And so he has a passive income stream. He gets paid not only for his own work, but for the work of others. And so, consequently, verse 2 tells us he was wealthy. Now, this is one thing he shares in common with the rich ruler from chapter 18. That man was also wealthy. But these men made their wealth in very different ways, and their respectability in terms of how they made their living made them very different types of people. In Luke 18, several different types of people were interested in Jesus. Here in Luke 19, we find another man who is interested in Jesus. His name was Zacchaeus. He was powerful, and he was wealthy. And we find out something else that makes him very different about Jesus. In verses 3 and 4. Notice what it says there. Verse 3 says, he wanted to see who Jesus was. Now this is something that I've already said is common about amongst all these people. All of these people want some kind of audience with Jesus and for different reasons from each other. But notice that this man is willing to go to extraordinary lengths to see Jesus. He's willing to do what other people won't do in order to encounter Jesus and find out who he is. And so verse 3 continues to tell us, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, the poor guy, (laughs) in any crowd he was visually blocked, and not because his eyes didn't work like the blind man, but because there were people who were taller who were in his way. And so knowing that if he just stuck with the crowd and tried to stay with them and see Jesus he would almost certainly never get a look at him because he was too short and wouldn't be able to maybe elbow his way to the front. He comes up with a better idea. Verse three continues and says, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Verse four, so he ran ahead. And so he sees that the crowd is going through the major road. He knows that eventually Jesus is gonna get up there. And so instead of sticking with the crowd, he runs ahead of the crowd and he's got a better idea. Verse 4 continues and says, He climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. He not only moved ahead of the crowd, but he elevated himself by climbing a tree. And this is highly unusual. You see, this man was, had um, a certain level of respectability because of his wealth, and yet he was also despised because of how he had made his money There was um, some shifting ideas about who he was in, in the culture in which he lived. But whatever shreds of respectability he had, he was willing to throw out the window in order to see Jesus. By climbing this tree, this man was doing an unusual act. He was making an unusual effort to see Jesus. And it was one that people would kind of make fun of him for, potentially. Look at that wee little man Who climbed that tree. What a strange thing for someone to do. No respectable person would climb a tree in their own community just to see somebody walking by. Just to get a look at this famous person so he can try to find out what's so special about him. And notice that verse 3 says he wanted to see who Jesus was. See, this man is unlike the blind man. The blind man knew who Jesus was. He knew that Jesus was the son of David. That's a messianic title. He knew that Jesus was coming as king. He knew that Jesus' miracle working power was an expression of who Jesus was. Zacchaeus doesn't know any of this. He just knows Jesus is a famous guy, but he doesn't know why he's famous. He doesn't know what he can do. He doesn't really know much about him at all. And so when it says he wants to see who Jesus is, it's not because he has faith in Jesus. He doesn't really even know much about Jesus at all. Other than that, he is famous. And so he's a different kind of person from the ones we've encountered before. And his presence shows us, again, that different kinds of people are interested in Jesus. I found this in my life. If I talk to people about our church, some people are interested and some people aren't. If I talk to them about the Bible or about the fact that I'm a pastor, a minister, some people are interested in that and some people aren't. But if you start talking about Jesus and something Jesus said, I found people are interested in this and their interest cuts across the normal kinds of silos of people that we tend to group people into. And Zacchaeus illustrates that as well. Now, here's what's interesting. Different kinds of people are interested in Jesus, but has, it ever thought, or has the thought ever entered your mind What kind of person is Jesus interested in? That's an interesting question, isn't it? All kinds of people are interested in Jesus. And Jesus has a whole crowd of people traveling with him. And there's no mention in the text that Jesus actually singled out any of them other than the 12 apostles that he knew to try to get to know them, to try to make friends with the people who were following along with him. And so many kinds of people are interested in Jesus, but who is Jesus actually interested in? Well, the answer is quite surprising. And although different kinds of people are interested in Jesus, this principle is true today as well. Different kinds of people are interested in Jesus, but people are often surprised by the kind of person that Jesus is interested in. Look with me at verse 5. Verse 5 says, When Jesus reached the spot, that's the spot where Zacchaeus is up in the tree, you know, holding on but eagerly looking from his elevated vantage point to find out who Jesus was. And the Bible says, When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up. He didn't ignore Zacchaeus. And he didn't point at him and say, Look at that wee little man who claimed the tree. What a strange dude. No, Jesus doesn't say any of this. But he does demonstrate interest in Zacchaeus. Verse 5 continues, When he reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus! Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because we know these two have never met before. This guy doesn't know who Jesus is. And yet Jesus comes along. He spots this little man up in the tree, and he immediately calls forth his name. This is a surprising thing. It probably surprised the people who were following along in Jesus' entourage. I bet it surprised Zacchaeus quite a bit too. How does this man, who I barely you know, don't know anything about him other than he's famous, how does he know my name? And the answer to that is, Jesus is interested in people personally. This is one thing that surprises us. We are surprised that Jesus is interested in people personally. Jesus knew Zacchaeus' name. Part of that was because Jesus, as the one-of-a-kind man, of course, had access to the divine intelligence. Jesus was God. He is God. And as God, he could know all things. He did know all things. Although during his life on earth, some of his knowledge was limited by God the Father, he did, in his essence, know all things. But I think there's a deeper issue going on here. I think there's a deeper reason why Jesus knew Zacchaeus' name. It's not just an expression of his omniscience, his all-knowing nature as God. I think the scripture is demonstrating to us that Jesus had a personal interest in this man. And one thing we find out as we read the scriptures is that coming to Jesus is not really a general admission type of thing. Recently, I went to a U of M soccer game and it was kind of a fun experience. They had a section where you could buy a specific seat like you would at like, a football game. But for the most part, there were just bleachers, and my ticket said general admission, which means this. You can sit anywhere you want, except for that one reserved section. Just find yourself a seat, right? Anyone can buy a ticket. Anyone can come in who has a ticket, and anyone who has a ticket gets general admission. They can sit anywhere they want. And a lot of people think that coming to Jesus is like this. But the Bible tells us that God knows personally everyone who comes to Jesus in faith, and the fact that Jesus knew Zacchaeus 's name demonstrates his personal interest in this man, that this was a man that God had chosen. I want you to notice in a couple of other passages of Scripture how the Bible emphasizes the name of the names of people who Come to faith in Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 and 15, the scripture says this, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. God's ways are not general admission. God saves specific individuals because he is interested in people personally. And notice this passage, which says something similar, but it says it in a, in a very intriguing way. In Revelation chapter 17, verse eight, it says the inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life. Now notice this from the foundation of the world, from the creation of the world. If you're a Christian, when was your name written in the book of life? It wasn't on the day you accepted Jesus as your Savior. It was before anything was created. Why? Because God is interested in people personally. The reason that Jesus knew Zacchaeus' name was that Zacchaeus was one of his chosen ones. Zacchaeus, as different as he was from any of the apostles, as different as he was from anyone in the crowd that followed Jesus, As different as he was from the parents who brought their babies to Jesus, or the rich ruler who came to Jesus, or the blind man who came to Jesus. He was someone that Jesus knew personally. He knew him by name. And this often surprises us. Maybe you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, and as you've grown in your discipleship, you come to find out that before you chose Jesus, Jesus chose you. And in fact, he chose you before you were even created. This is because of God's incredible love. God knows and loves people personally. And that often surprises us. But there's something else that surprises us about the people that Jesus is interested in. We're surprised that Jesus is interested in people personally, but we're also surprised that Jesus is interested in sinners. You see, that goes against our usual thinking. We think that Jesus likes religious people. We think Jesus likes people that are more, I know you've read the Bible and so you understand on some conceptual level that Jesus likes sinners, okay? But the truth of the matter is, we still kind of get stuck on this. Even after coming to faith in Christ, even after studying the word, we still kind of think that Jesus likes whatever our conception of a normal person is, whatever our conception of a moral person is. We think this is the kind of people that Jesus is interested in. And so we're surprised when Jesus knows the name of a sinner. When Jesus fellowships with a sinner, notice how the passage continues in uh, verse 5. The scripture says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today now the way that this language is written it's translated in our niv masks a little bit of what jesus is saying here jesus commands zacchaeus to come down he invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house and he does so as an overnight guest the language in the original greek is suggests that jesus is going to stay there for the night now we know jesus is passing through jericho he's not going to stay long but his intention is to stay the night And his command to Zacchaeus is, come down and get the place ready because I'm coming over and I'm spending the night here. Jesus exercises lordship over Zacchaeus, but notice how Zacchaeus responds. Verse five continues, or verse six, I should say. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. If someone told me they were gonna invite themselves over to my house, hopefully I would be gracious enough to host them, but I'd be a little put out by the command not Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was happy to have Jesus come to his house, and yet he still doesn't know who Jesus is. It's because God is doing a work here. God is up to something. But notice the passage continues and says this, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. All these people who have followed Jesus from Galilee, They're walking in this long train of people, this massive crowd that's going with Jesus to Jerusalem. And of all the people that Jesus could have spoken with and spoken to by name, of all the people that Jesus could have demonstrated a personal interest in, people who were interested in him and were following him along, Jesus doesn't want to talk to any of them. He picks a dude out of a tree and says, hey, Mr. Zacchaeus, you're the guy I want to get to know. You're the person I want to fellowship with. And in going to this man's house, Jesus was publicly identifying with this man, Zacchaeus. He makes no interest to hide. He makes no effort to hide his interest in Zacchaeus, even though Zacchaeus is a sinner. And this is offensive to the people who follow Jesus. No, it shouldn't have been. This is not the first tax collector Jesus has saved. It's not the first person that was Um, socially disrespectable that Jesus had chosen to be one of his own. And yet, people just never quite get used to the fact that Jesus is interested in sinners, but he is. And Jesus demonstrates his incredible grace towards sinners by choosing the most offensive to other people and choosing them not only to be his followers, to know him by name, but to enjoy fellowship with them. And notice how the passage continues, because there's actually a gap in between the, what like, the verses describe and what actually happened. Let me show you that gap right here at this time. Verse 6 says, so Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed Jesus gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. And then it says in verse 8, but Zacchaeus stood up and says something to the Lord. Now, here's where the gap is. What, last time we saw Zacchaeus, he was coming down out of the tree, Next time we see him, he's getting up from something, okay? which means the scene has changed. In between him coming down to the tree and him getting up in verse 8, in verse 7, people watch Jesus go to this man's house. Most likely, they watch Zacchaeus offer Jesus a meal at his home, at his table. Maybe Zacchaeus has already shown Jesus the guest room and Jesus has put down whatever few belongings he had. We really didn't have many. And they've welcomed, he's been welcomed to Zacchaeus' table for a meal. During this period of time, no doubt Jesus was describing who he was. No doubt he was talking with Zacchaeus personally about Zacchaeus' life and about the kingdom that Jesus was bringing and about Zacchaeus' need to repent and follow Jesus. The scripture doesn't tell us any of this. But we know from watching how Jesus interacts with people that this is almost certainly what happened. And at the end of this process, which isn't described in the passage to us, but almost certainly happened, Zacchaeus stands up. This is an indication that what he wants to say to Jesus, he's going to say to him personally, but he wants it to be a public pronouncement. And so Zacchaeus is going to respond to meeting Jesus personally, He's going to respond to being welcomed by Jesus and welcoming Jesus into his home. He's going to respond to all that Jesus has said about repentance and the the, uh, entering of God's kingdom by faith. And what is that response? In verse 8 it says, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything... I will pay back four times the amount. Here's a sinful man who did not collect his wealth by being generous. And yet he gets up and he stands up and makes a public pronouncement of his intention to be generous immediately. He says, here now I give half of what I have to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody, I'll pay them back four times the amount. These are incredibly generous terms. In Jesus' world, giving away 20% of your income was considered extremely generous. And anyone, whether rich or poor, was counseled not to give away 20%, more than 20%, because you would need it for your life going forward. Well, here's a man who gives half of what he says, of what he has, he says he will give to the poor. And Jesus makes a pronouncement about this man. He makes a pronouncement that this man is now saved. Look at verse 9. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. This man hasn't said anything about believing that Jesus is the Messiah. He hasn't said the exact words, I repent and turn now to Jesus. But Jesus sees through the act of this man in response to the message of Jesus. And says, I can tell by how this man has responded to my message that his heart has turned and that he has come to God. That his eternal destiny, which was once, like all sinners, the place called hell, has changed. And he is now, in the words of Jesus, saved. Salvation today has come to this house, Jesus says in verse 9. And this is startling. Really, if you think about what we've learned from chapter 18 forward. Back in chapter 18, remember, a rich ruler came to Jesus. And he said all the right things. He said, I know I lack something to receive eternal life. What is it, Jesus? Just tell me. Just tell me what it is, and I'll do it. And you'll remember, and I'll remind you of that conversation, In Luke chapter 18, verses 22 through 27, it says, When Jesus heard this, that is the man saying, I've kept all of God's commands from the time of my childhood forward. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. And So here's a man who comes to Jesus and looks like he has all of the uh, the, the mindset and motivation that someone who becomes a follower of Jesus would and should have. And Jesus says, no, you're not in, you're not saved. And then Jesus makes this pronouncement, continuing in Luke 18, through 27. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And you'll remember as we went through this passage that there's no metaphor here about the camel and the needle's eye. Jesus isn't talking about some mythical gate that never existed that camels had to kneel on to go through. That that didn't happen. All right, that's fake. Somebody made that up. Jesus is talking about a literal camel, a massive animal in its size and its weight. And he's talking about the literal eye of a needle, something so small I can't even poke a piece of um, string through it. Jesus is saying it's impossible for the rich to, to get into heaven. It's so impossible that you'd be more likely to stuff that camel through that tiny needle's eye than for a rich man to be saved. And the disciples are like, what hope do we have? They say in the next verse, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, you've got it. You're right. With men this is impossible. Getting that camel through the needle's eye. Don't even bother trying cuz you know it ain't going to work. Jesus says with men this is impossible. But what but with God all things are possible. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Zacchaeus illustrates this. He is a rich man who made it through the needle's eye like a camel. He did the impossible, not because he did anything, but because Jesus chose him and called him by name and told him to repent, and he did repent, and he showed his repentance through his willingness to give up everything he had for Jesus, his willingness to lay down his idol of wealth, which was the problem with the rich man here in Matthew 18, or Luke 18. He didn't want to lay down his idol of wealth. He wanted Jesus, his true God, The money he had. Zacchaeus defies all of this. He goes against the grain in every way. He illustrates the impossible. Sometimes camels really do go through the eyes of a needle if God does the work. And he's done the work here in the life of Zacchaeus. And so Jesus wants to emphasize to us with what is impossible with man is possible with God. And that's what Zacchaeus shows us in this passage. And I can't help but point out the contrasts between the rich ruler and this man Zacchaeus. They had one thing in common. They were both wealthy. In every other way, really, they were different from each other. And so I gave this to you in your notes, but I just want to walk through it because I just think it's so interesting and I think it's so important. When we contrast the rich ruler in Luke 18 from Zacchaeus in in Luke 19, what we see is this. The rich ruler was very wealthy, according to Luke 18.23, and Zacchaeus was wealthy, according to Luke 19.2. And I don't think the lack of the word very is trying to say, well, he was kind of wealthy, but not as wealthy as the rich ruler. I think what the scripture is telling us is they're both loaded. All right? So they're both wealthy men. The rich young ruler, though, he kept the commandments. Remember, that was his um, commendation to Jesus. He was a very moral man, an upstanding citizen in his community. By contrast, Zacchaeus was a sinner, and everybody knew it. And so morally speaking, they are very different from each other, even though they are both rich. The rich young ruler was told by Jesus, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. And his response was he got sad about it because there was no way he was giving up everything to follow Jesus. Zacchaeus, Jesus didn't tell him to do anything. On his own, he voluntarily said, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if Jesus had said, give the other half to," he would have done it. He shows a very different type of person. The response to the rich young ruler who wouldn't do the impossible, couldn't do the impossible. The response of people was, who then can be saved? But after Zacchaeus made his pronouncement, after he promised the Lord that he would give up his idol and follow Jesus, Jesus said this about him, today salvation has come to this house. People are interested in Jesus. Very different types of people are interested in Jesus but it's really surprising who Jesus is interested in. Those whom Jesus chooses to be his followers surprise us in so many ways. They're not the kind of people we would think would become Christians. And when they do become Christians, they do things that are surprising to us because of the grace of God working in their lives. And so... This rich man, Zacchaeus, shows that his faith in Christ is genuine by his new attitude toward money. Suddenly what was once so preeminently important to him that he would give up his reputation and be looked down in his community so that he could be rich, now that is so unimportant to him that he's willing to give it away generously and pay back anyone he has taken money from. His new attitude toward money shows that his salvation was genuine. And the point of these stories is to teach us that Jesus can save any kind of person. He can do the impossible. And so the lesson for us, the big idea for today then is this. Don't be surprised by the kind of person that Jesus saves. Don't be surprised by the kind of person that Jesus saves saves. The passage concludes in verse 43. Sorry, in uh, verse 10. Matthew 19, or Luke 19.10 says, for the son of man, this is Jesus' favorite title for himself, has come to seek and to save the lost. It tells us that Jesus comes looking for sinners. And not only that he finds them, that he rescues them, he saves them. And so when we talk about the kind of person that Jesus saves and not being surprised by them, we need to understand again and again and emphasize to ourselves that Jesus came to save sinners because sinners are lost. That's the point. Yes, it's true that sinners have broken the laws of God. That's what sin is. Sin is a violation of God's moral laws. But people violate God's moral laws because they are lost internally. They are lost spiritually. They are cut off from God. And although they may hear his truth, morally speaking and spiritually speaking, they can't accept it because they can't see their way out like a lost person who can see the path but can never find their way out. So it is with people who are sinners. Sinners are lost. And they'll never find their way out on their own. This is why Jesus came to save them. This is why Jesus came to save us. And this means, too, that you are a sinner. and That means you are lost and need to be saved. If your life is ever going to make sense, if it's ever going to be meaningful in the ways that matter for eternity, the ways that God says, it's not because you find or cut your own moral path of improvement. It's because you'll be saved by Jesus Christ. The Bible says that all of us start out in this situation. We all start out lost. The scripture says in Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 24, this righteousness, that is the righteousness that saves people, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is what the rich ruler didn't understand. He didn't understand that he was lost because he actually had an idol that was money. He didn't understand that he needed to be saved and that he had sinned before God. He thought he was in a good place and just needed to add add one extra thing. But the Bible says we are all, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. That means every one of us is a sinner. That means you're a sinner. We've all broken the laws of God, and and we've done that because we are lost, spiritually speaking. But Jesus came to save the lost. He came to redeem people who are lost. And so the next principle is this. Come to Jesus to meet him personally and be saved. Come to Jesus And meet him personally to be saved. We as evangelical Christians emphasize the importance of having a personal faith relationship with Jesus Christ. Which means even if you grew up in a Christian family and your parents are solid Christians. And they brought you up in the Christian faith. And you've heard God's word again and again from the beginning. There still needs to come a place in your life where God calls your name. Spiritually speaking. And you respond to the invitation to be saved by saying, I believe Jesus died for me. Every person who comes to Jesus does so personally. And if you're lost this morning, let me urge you to come to Jesus personally to be saved because Jesus came to save the lost. Notice this passage. It's very interesting because I've already said that that everyone who is saved was called by God and known by God, chosen by God before the world was even created. But Notice what the scripture says in this passage. Jesus says this in John 5, 39 and 40. You study the scriptures diligently. These are people who love God's word. They loved the Old Testament. They thought they were serious Jewish people taking their spiritual life seriously. They thought, and Jesus says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you will have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Yes, it's true that God chooses everyone who is saved, but here's another truth. Every sinner who is unsaved has refused God's gracious message. Everyone who goes to hell is guilty before God, not only because they've sinned, but also because they've rejected the grace of God that is extended to them in Jesus Christ. Is that going to be you? Are you going to hear this message that Jesus saves sinners and saying, that's not for me. The cost is too high to identify with Jesus. Please let me urge you, don't let any social status, don't let any wealth that you've accumulated or anything that's important to you, don't let any person stand between you and the most important thing that can happen to you in this life come to Jesus. Turn from your sin and your selfish ways and receive the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian this morning, please receive the offer of salvation from God's gracious hand. It'll change your life just like it changed Zacchaeus. But finally, let me add this, and this is where most of us are this morning as Christians who have come to Jesus, we're still surprised by the kind of person that Jesus saves. And the scripture would tell us that you and I should never decide that anyone is beyond the saving grace of Jesus. Because I think that we as Christians, we forget that Jesus is all about saving sinners. And so we make distinctions about people. We think that person will never get saved. That person could never be, become a Christian They just are too steeped in secularism or they care too much about this political party or they just have so much money that how could they ever care about becoming a follower of Jesus or they're so um, caught in addiction that, that they'll never find their way out. This passage rebukes our false attitudes it reminds us that God loves sinners. The truth of the matter is, while you and I may think that we are better people than others, we were sinners in the sight of God, fully deserving His wrath. And the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, the one uh, who informs so much of our faith and what we believe, wants us to remember that he was once what he calls the worst of sinners. In 1 Timothy one 15 through 15-16, the Scripture says, here's a trustworthy saying, that deserves full acceptance, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, that is because I'm the worst, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Zacchaeus shows that God can save any type of person. Paul shows that God can save any type of person. Even the the worst critic of our faith, even the most uh, strident and violent persecutor of God's people can be saved because God can do what's impossible. And you and I as Christians need to remember this as we go out into the world. Do you find yourself thinking that someone who sits in the same room as you and does work could never become a Christian because they're too addicted to alcohol or they like the party lifestyle too much or they're too steeped in their own religion which isn't Christianity and it would just be so hard to unlearn everything that they've learned that there's no way they'll ever come to Jesus and so why should I even bother talking to them about Christ? Or maybe you think that your boss or a neighbor who's uh, much wealthier than you are could never come to Christ because they have everything they want. They'll never see that they lack something. Or maybe it's the person that you um, you buy gas from and you look at satanic tattoos up and down their arms and you think, this person will never come to Jesus. That's exactly the kind of attitude that this passage was given to confront. The minute we say, I'm not going to witness Jesus to this person because they'll never come to Jesus, is the minute we fail to understand how God works. Jesus came to save sinners, and this world is full of them. So never conclude, never decide that anyone is beyond the saving grace of Jesus. If there's someone in your life who you could reach with the gospel, you could share the gospel with them, but you haven't because you've already concluded they'll never get saved let this passage change your mind. Jesus came to save sinners. So don't be surprised by the kind of person that Jesus saves.